for me, the money didn't matter. The time freedom mattered, right? I could have way more money, but I would have sacrificed a bunch of my living in the process of doing that, right? And so for me, the time freedom is important. Having a bunch of money, money is a tool. Money is fungible. Money, money, money is funny. It gets printed all the time. It's just a tool to use. You could always make more. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome back, Contrarian Cashflow. I've got Eric Tate today with me. Eric, how are you doing, my man? I'm great, John. Thanks for having me on. Oh man, I am pumped about this conversation. I would definitely recommend anybody go check out any other podcast interviews Eric has done. He's just a wealth of knowledge. So uh, for those folks that don't know, Eric Tate, combo MD, MBA, host of the Physician's Road podcast, co-founder with his wife of Vernonville Asset Management, and of course, above all else, a loving father and husband. So I know you always have a ton of things going on right now, but what are you working on currently right now, Eric? So interesting. So this is, I guess, the third week of January, 2021. So we have a vineyard under contract in Hill Country in Texas. So that's taking a little longer to close than we want. We're still waiting for the banks and the lawyers to to work their magic out, but it's fully funded. We're just waiting to pull the trigger. We have a light industrial portfolio spread across Houston, three properties, about 380,000 square feet. We're doing the presentation for that in two days. We sold one of those types of properties. So we're rolling over about a little less than a million dollars from that sale into it. So we've got to raise about two or three million more um, on that. And then in the background, we have a debt fund, kind of a fixed income fund um, that kind of opens and closes as needed. Um, there's a fintech company that lends to physicians and dentists. And so we're helping them fund their loans to, to our colleagues. So we've only got something going on uh, here and there. Yeah, just a little bit, right? <laughs> well, and, and one of the things I love about your background, I know I've heard you talk about it before, but kind of the flow of capital, right? And just kind of even from what you're working on right now, you talked about a vineyard, you talked about industrial, you talked about, you know, fintech and then lending and, and debt fund. I just love the fact that you're kind of looking at, you know, kind of the market as a whole, right? And trying to find those gaps instead of just saying, hey, this is the path that I'm taking, you know, hell or high water. And you're very intentional from that perspective. So, um, well, one thing, you know, we usually get into the journey, but but one thing I wanted to kind of touch on before that is um, just the fact that like you were just so put together and kind of, you know, ready to take on the professional realm and knowing what you wanted from life so early. So think different is a huge you know, component of this show, understanding how people think differently to, to attain the levels of success that they want. So what from your life early on or through college kind of allowed you to, you know, build that life and, and understand what you wanted early on? I think my parents, right? My parents were very much about us being, my sisters and I being critical thinkers, um, don't just accept things. Just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's correct. This is before the internet, right? Just because something's in a book doesn't mean it's correct. And to really question, I wouldn't say question everything, but they gave us the latitude and the freedom to be free thinkers. And so with that, then that allowed us to, like they, they put us on a pathway of kind of kind of middle-ass hierarchy, right? So my eldest sister is a lawyer. My middle sister was a banker on Wall Street. I'm a doctor, right? So, you know, to the outside world, 
you look at my parents, you're like, oh, well, shoot, you all are a really relatively successful family when it comes to all of that, right? And so, yes, so they put us on that traditional pathway, but they didn't necessarily dissuade us if we wanted to take a different journey. So they gave us the foundational background. Like, okay, you're, we'll take care of college. You'll get to college. We'd, we'd appreciate you going to grad school. So you have something to fall back on. But never once did they ever tell us not to pursue whatever dreams you may have, even if they did not coincide with the, the traditional pathway of those specific professions. And so it really, it really came from that being able to question and challenge and chart my own course as a young person, and then being able to be backed up by family in that process, laid all the groundwork possible for me to just decide kind of what it is that I wanted to do and, and have that confidence to be able to go out there and just pursue whatever's out there. Yeah. Yeah. So what took you down the path of medicine? So my great grandfather was a physician I and mean, he lived with my mother growing up. Uh, his son was a physician. My uncle, my sister, my mother's brother was a physician. So it was kind of in the family um, from that standpoint. And so I, you know, I had a, I had a science aptitude growing up. Um, helping people was, was helpful. And, but alongside that, I always was kind of an entrepreneur as well. And so you know, most people, if they knew me growing up, they knew I had a bunch of kind of side businesses, people in colleges. I had businesses in college. Like most people in college, if they didn't know me super well, didn't know I was going necessarily to medical school. Um, and so I've always kind of had that dual track and that dual pathway. Um, but from a family standpoint, we've, we've had physicians in the family. So it was thing that, that while I didn't live in the same city as um, those family members, they were all kind of always present with a, with a knowledge of me knowing that they were there. Yeah, well, I started off pre med as well. Uh, didn't finish the track, but uh, <laughs> my uh, my grandfather, my mother's dad, my grandfather was a physician, and I, I realized early on that school just wasn't for me. I couldn't have stuck it out. Well, I always say that, but I you know I hung out a little bit longer than I should have, but uh, <laughs> definitely not the the entire physician track. So uh, no, I, I love that uh, absolutely. So how did the journey start? You know, you went you went to college. You've been very intentional about where you've tried to land as far as geographies, cities, what you've been doing. So so can you kind of start us off in, in how you got into college and what chose you to take the dual MD, MBA path? Yeah, I mean, so I went to the same college as my uncle, where my uncle went to went to school. Um, it at the time it was the number one college for putting uh, African American males into medical school. And so I'm you know, life doesn't have to be hard, right? There are certain well-worn paths that you can just go down and just, it's just a well-worn path, right? Um, and, you know, I'm not afraid of hard work. Clearly, if anybody knows me, they know I work hard, but I don't intentionally seek difficulty, right? So if there's a well-worn path on how to go and do something, then, then I just follow that, right? And so at the time, it was very easy to, to I would say, the pathway to get to, to medical school for me, where I went to college, I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta. It's to this day, it's still a, it's a, it's an easy path. You, 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 you plug in and it's a conveyor belt. And so I did two years of summer research at the uh, University of Pennsylvania. And so, you know, the Wharton School is there. I had already had businesses, small businesses in college. I was like, oh, there's such a thing as an MD, MBA. Interesting. Okay. Well, I knew that I wanted to practice medicine. So I didn't need to go to an Ivy League kind of graduate school, right? Like my, 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 my middle sister went to Columbia for business school. My college roommate went to Columbia for business school. I mean, like we could do that very easily, right? Not a big deal. But I was like, the MBA is not going to drive my career. So it didn't matter to me to go to a super high name brand school for, 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 for business school. And so for me, it was like, okay, where, where can I go? That's going to make sense. I'm 
and will probably cost a little less and will be an easier pathway for me. And so I I found out at, when I was a sophomore in college that Baylor College of Medicine, where I went to medical school, and Rice University, where I went to business school, was in the process of creating a dual degree program. Um, because at the time they were recruiting, like I said, my college sends a lot of people to medical school. So the top schools come in. And so I knew that information as an undergrad. And I made the calculation very quickly, like, oh, if they're going to set this up, by the time I get there, it'll be still a fairly new program. I probably will not have to take, have to take the GMAT in that process. They'll just take my MCAT scores. And that's exactly what happened. And so of all the schools, I looked, okay, what was the best mix of kind of a school in the South that had a decently, was decently well-ranked on the medical side um, and wasn't going to be super expensive. And then all, okay. And then also they're setting up this program. So at the time, Baylor College of Medicine was ranked like 11 or 10 or 11 in, in the country in terms of medical schools. Like, okay, that's a good compromise there. Rice was an up and coming business school. I was like, Hey, good enough for me. I'm good. You know, I didn't care about the, the name brand aspect as much. It was really just being able to go through the program. And then the beauty was it was a five-year program because Baylor College of Medicine actually does an accelerated kind of classroom course. So instead of two years, they do a year and a half. So the total program was going to be five years for both degrees. Everywhere else was going to be six years or more. I was like, oh, okay. So this whole thing will work. Let's come to Houston. And so that's literally how I came to Houston. Yeah, absolutely. And so from that track, I know that there was a, you know, a, a happening during college that kind of an awakening, I guess, you know, that you, we talked about, we were talking about right beforehand. So what, you know, you talked about the entrepreneurial ventures, but what really accelerated that outside of just kind of little side hustles or, you know, little small businesses that were just more maybe hobbies than, than actual, you know, income producing, you know, opportunities? Well, interesting. So the great thing was they were income producing because, you know, I was not a broke college student, thank goodness. Um, we were actually, my, my roommate and I were able to fund a lot of what we needed to do during college doing those kinds of things. The acceleration, you know, it's interesting. It really was business school, right? I tell people all the time that you can use education for not just what you should do, but also what you shouldn't do, right? And so in business school, I've learned very quickly kind of about the, di the distribution between labor and capital, right? Um, and that our society rewards, it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't reward labor, it's just capital, you can create so much more velocity using capital. So that was the first thing. The second thing I understood the difference between a service-based business and like an, what I consider an asset-based business, something that you can sell whether or not you're in it or not, right? And that's where my awakening came that, you know, medicine is a service-based business. And so ultimately, my remuneration is going to be always a fixture of, for the most part, my labor. Then I was like, okay, well, I have to figure out how to do this capital thing. But then I realized very quickly, okay, well, most people think that they're going to get wealthy in the stock market, not realizing that's a place where you place wealth, not necessarily where you grow a ton of wealth outside of kind of the usual increases in inflation and those kinds of things, right? Notwithstanding what the Fed is doing and the amount of money that's going to the market now, this was still back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where the Fed wasn't doing the same type of intervention. They were just beginning to do it in a very, very specific kind of way. And so once I realized, and you know, I'm in Houston, it's 2000, Enron is there, their stock is going up, we're doing their, their, their financials. In my accounting class, they hadn't made any money from corporations for three years, their stock price was still going up. And I was like, this makes no intuitive sense to me. Like, I'm a common sense guy, right? People like to put the financial wizardry out there and talk all these fancy terms. I'm a common sense guy. My sister and one of her classmates, when they were in business school, said to me very easily what a business is. You as an investor are giving a business a dollar, let's just say it's Coca-Cola. They're going to make some sugary syrup, sell it to some bottlers, and you hope to get five to 10 cents back a year. That's what a business is. If you give them a dollar, what do they do with it? 
And so all the kind of financial chicanery and all that kind of stuff that goes on with Wall Street makes no sense to me intuitively. So at that point, I had to decide that, you know what, I don't want anything to do with that with my own capital. And so for me, then it, went, it was a journey in business school to figure out how to invest my own capital. And that's literally where the turning point came is, okay, how do I do this? What's the way that I can do this? Okay, service-based businesses aren't going to work, so I'm going to need something that's not that. Well, I'm going to be working as a physician. I'm not going to have time. So that's when I ended up landing on real estate as the base portion of where our family was going to hold its wealth. And that's really the turning point is when I got to see how the sausage is made when it comes to Wall Street, and I got to have an understanding kind of of labor versus capital. And so I said, what is the best way to maximize the use of my time and kind of increase the capacity of my labor? To me, it ended up being real estate because I was working full time as a physician. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what so many people struggle with. And I know me personally, you know, coming out, that was kind of the goal was to, hey, get a high paying salary job. And you you feel like you've kind of attained, you know, some semblance of success within society, right? You know, instead of, you know, having this freedom or having the freedom of choice of time, you know, where do you spend your time? Where do you go with things? And I wasn't as focused with building capital as I was with, you know, increasing what I was making based off of my labor, right? And I just think that's such an interesting dynamic. So, I guess if we can kind of like look at that holistically within physicians in general, is that a consensus feeling or are most physicians just focused on, you know, their actual labor and what they can accomplish, you know, with, with their hands or, you know, with their minds throughout the day? Yeah. It's not just physicians. It's everybody, right? That is the, that is the kind of holy grail of how people are taught. Get a high paying job that you can then put money away in a 401k that you can hope to not spend down before you die, right? That is the 99% way of doing things, right? But the people who are in the 1%, that's not how they operate, right? You know, there's always a saying that if you do what other people do, you're going to get what other, other people get. And so for me, I just try to model the people whose lives look the way that I want my life to look. I'm not, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm not smart enough to come up with new stuff. I'm just going to copy stuff, right? I'm just going to copy well-worn paths, right? I don't need to I don't need to innovate to get to where I want to go. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have a certain amount of intelligence and don't think in a certain kind of way, but I'm just one to just believe that life doesn't have to be hard. There are there are well-worn pathways on how to do these kinds of things. The problem is for most people it will feel uncomfortable because most people they know are not doing that. So you have to actually change the group of people that you're around and be around people who are actually doing the thing that it is that you want to be doing so that you can see an an affirmative model of it, right? People all the time will tell you what can't be done because they, they, they either fail themselves or they've heard it from other people. And I say, I don't want to hear how not to do something, right? I only need to know how to do it. So just put me in front of the people who know how to do it. I don't care what ways don't work. I only care about the ways that do work. And if I can just find the way that does work, I'm just going to do that, right? And so, and that's just a very different mindset than how we're taught about most things in, in, in the world. Most school teaches us, you know, you don't cheat, right? You don't, you don't, you don't help with other people. You're all yourself, but business is nothing but putting together teams. It's all businesses is collaboration. And so we're literally taught in schools not to collaborate when all of life is collaboration, right? It's just, it's just, it's, it's, I call it bizarro world, right? If you used to watch the justice league and there was, you know, this bizarro, bizarro justice league. That's literally how I feel walking through society most of the time, because what most people think is great, I would never touch with a 10 foot pole. And what most people look from the outside at what I do and like you do, what you do is so risky. Right. And I'm like, that's fine. 
I, and I tell people all the time, I'm not in the convincing business. I'm just in the opportunity business. What I do works for me, right? And you know, you have to decide if it's going to ultimately work for you. But I just model after the the, the what the wealthy do. It's either real estate or a non-service based business of where they hold their wealth. And that's just that to me, it's it's no more difficult than that. That's such an important point. I mean, you know, being able to find you know successes and just in copying them. I think to your point exactly. You know, real estate's been a store of wealth for eons, right? You know, no, none of us are smart enough to have created that, you know, and being able to decouple your income or your wealth from your labor, right? I mean, that's the only true way that you can be free or, you know, attain the level of wealth that, that you can do the things and make the choices on a daily basis that you, that you want to do. So I think that's just such tremendous points. So how did you- Actually, I want to make the point before we move on is for me, the money didn't matter. The time freedom mattered, Right. I could have way more money, but I would have sacrificed a bunch of my living in the process of doing that, right? And so for me, the time freedom is important. Having a bunch of money, money is a tool. Money is fungible. Money, money, money is funny. It gets printed all the time. It's just a tool to use. You can always make more. People wrap up psychological, people wrap up their own kind of historical kind of hurts and fears and family hurts and fears around money. Money is just a tool. You can always make more of it. People are so afraid to lose money and this, that, and the other. Like, listen, as long as you are able-bodied and have, you know, make sure that you have your disability insurance in place, but you can always make more money, right? The key is what do you want your money to do for you, right? For me, my money was always about giving me the time to choose the life that I wanted, right? It wasn't about making a ton of money. There are tons of people who make a ton of money who are absolutely miserable. That's not what I want. What I, I will slowly build wealth to control my time. And so how the money is made is more important than actually making the money. So I want to make sure that people understand that I am not money motivated. What I am is time motivated, right? Because I have bigger, as I say, the bigger rocks and, and larger things in life that I want to be around for in terms of family and children and travel and those kinds of things. That to me is the motivation. The money is just a tool with which to make that happen. But you have to make the money in a certain way to be able to get that. That's such a powerful point. I mean, you just said that so eloquently. And I think that's what a lot of people in the audience are looking to attain, right? You know, it's, hey, how do we, how do we get down that path so that we can decouple our labor from our, our income or our wealth so that we can spend more time and, you know, take a three month trip sabbatical, you know, with the kids, you know, what they're young, you know, you're young enough to be healthy to take them, you know, to Europe or Australia or or something fun and, and do something interesting, right? It's not necessarily about bragging or, you know, telling everyone, Hey, I'm so wealthy or, Hey, look at, you know, I've got a new car. I've got this new house. It's about what's the freedom that it can give you around time. I think that's just why, um, you know, why I truly enjoy your perspective on things because it's so important that again, nothing about this has been about you bragging or saying, Hey, I've got this number of assets under management or coercing anybody. It's like, Hey, I've got an opportunity. If it works for you, great. If not, you know, Hey, no harm, no foul. There's plenty of people that I can talk to that are interested in, in taking on this risk so that they can, again, themselves decouple their labor from, uh, from their income so that they can try to take on some of these opportunities. So, so how did you get around? I know you talked about getting around people that have made the mistakes and then they're kind of teaching you. So how did you take those steps early on to make sure you were in the right rooms so that you could learn and expedite that curve as much as possible? Yeah. And so it's interesting because I decided to do primary care. And so that's the lowest paid, most labor intensive thing you can do in, 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 in medicine. Right. So, you know, I was putting myself behind the, the proverbial eight ball when it came to labor um, in that regard. And so I had to make a decision and, and many high income earners have to make this decision. Had I been a high paid subspecialist, I may have made a very different decision. Right. But because the amount 
of remuneration I was making per hour wasn't high relative to other specialties I could have had, I made the initial decision to, to actually be an active investor, right? Now, if I had had a lot more money coming in, I may have decided to be completely passive, right? But because I decided to go down the active pathway, that necessitated me to go and learn something new, right? And so, you know, I've got a lot of, you know, formal education, so I'm not scared of learning anything. But I then had to go out and and find mentors. And some of them were paid mentors. And some of them were, you know, paid classes. Like, I'm a big personal development guy. So I've probably spent more time and more money. Well, probably not more money. I spent a ton of time in classes, right? And so anything I wanted to go learn, I went and then did seminars, classes, those kinds of things from people who were already doing it. And so initially when I came out of residency, I joined a local uh, real estate um, educational club. Wasn't very expensive, but they taught me a ton on single family and multifamily. So I could literally manage any one of those with my eyes closed, right? One of the best investments I ever made from that standpoint. And then it just grew from there. The different kinds of asset classes as we grew, I got around people who knew those asset classes or, or they were experts and they knew that I could, I had a group of people who wanted to invest in those types of things. So they said, Hey, Eric, we're doing these deals. We need more money. You've got investors. Do you want to come partner with us? Which then allows me not to have to do the day-to-day operations of those assets. You know, I will take less equity on a deal to partner with an expert, right? So that way my investors win, I win, and I don't have to be bogged down in the day-to-day of the operations, right? I can do operations. I hate operations. So I've chosen not to do them anymore, right? Every deal that we have outside of our, our kind of coffee plantations and, and this, this vineyard, I can run personally because I was an owner operator, right? That isn't always the case when you're talking to people who are raising capital to do different kinds of things from that standpoint. And so understanding, so for me, it was understanding what it is I want to do and what I didn't want to do. When I had the time before I had kids, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to do this on the operational side, right? I wouldn't do that now in my position. I would just, I'd be like we are now, passive, right? The only work I do is due diligence on our next deal. And then, you know, a couple of weeks of the capital raise and that's it, right? I don't have, I'm not in the weeds of the day-to-day operations of most of these kinds of things because we partner specifically with the experts. And so people, I think, have to understand what it is that they want to do because many people get enamored of, hey, well, I'm gonna go out there and start doing this stuff myself, not realizing that their, their time is a pie, right? It's a pie. So if you're going to add something in, something you're doing right now has to go away. So what part of your life are you now going to give up to go then become an expert in that specific kind of thing? And so people have to ask that question for themselves first before they do anything else, right? Uh, for me, it was active initially because I had the time and I and I could make money that was akin to what I was already making. But if I were a highly paid some specialist, there's no way I would have been active first. I would have just taken the money, amount of money I was making every year. I probably would not have had a very high lifestyle. I would have put the money into passive projects, and then I would have built my lifestyle as my passive income went up. I wouldn't allow the income I made from being a specialist determine my lifestyle. It would I would only increase my lifestyle based upon the amount of income that was coming in from my investments. Well, and I just think the point you just made around, you know, making sure you're focusing on what you enjoy and what you want to do. And I think, you know, again, back to people getting enamored with this opportunity. Hey, I want to be a capital raiser. Hey, I want to be, you know, real estate investor. I want to be, you know, I want, you know, a billion assets under management. I want 20,000 doors or whatever the case is. And I think what they lose sight of sometimes is your main point, which is around time freedom, right? 
you don't want to work yourself into another job. You know, this entre- entrepreneurship is extremely challenging and extremely difficult. And the thing about your path that I respect so much and love listening to is around you're doing everything intentionally, right? You're setting it up so that you're focusing on your strengths and, you know, in- integrating with investors, doing due diligence on deals, and then bringing those together, right? You know, and hey, this is an opportunity that we need to capture. And I think so many people get so caught up in, you know, wanting to do it all or wanting to be the biggest and the baddest. Now, all of a sudden, they're talking to, you know, 10,000 investors or, you know, the 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 constant, uh, you know, hamster wheel that they're trying to get, you know, more people in the funnel constantly. And so I think that's just such an important point, which ultimately goes back to what you've talked about before, being intentional around what you want to do and then what you're spending your time doing. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's the hardest thing that I have right now is not working myself into another job. Because I do have an intellectual curiosity. Um, I am asked to do a lot of different kinds of things. And so I have to be very strategic in the things that I choose um, from the standpoint that making sure that I don't get sucked back into kind of minutia that I don't enjoy, right? Um, I've graduated to the point where I can choose the things that I like to do and don't like to do. And so I have to be very mindful around, okay, what things are we going to add to this plate? And what does that look like? And does it serve my investors? Does it serve me? Does it serve my family? does it make ultimate sense in terms of kind of the life that's being built right now? So do you have like an actual kind of method or how do you look at that? You know, how often do you recalibrate? You know, is it a daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly? How often do you recalibrate and look at what you're doing and determine if it's, you know, if you're really going the direction that you truly want to go? Yeah. So I'm, I'm literally, I'm sitting in my uh, front bedroom, which is slash office. And so I've got two whiteboards up, quarterly kind of things up here. The The, the way I look at it is, Long tail or short tail, right? Is the work I'm going to do going to create a long tail income or equity stream after I've done the work? Or do I have to keep doing the work to keep getting the income or equity, right? And so then I look at it from that standpoint. Say, okay, that's number one. Number two is what are my investors needing right now? What is it that they're coming at me and saying that they're needing? Where is the hole from either a tax efficiency standpoint, just an income standpoint, an equity standpoint? Like how can I better serve them and in that case, I have to figure out, okay, who is it that we can partner with to service that need, right? And so how do we, and how do we structure um, a, a partnership and, and a relationship that is mutually beneficial to all parties involved, right? And so as opportunities come forward, they have to fit in that kind of bucket, right? Are they in the kind of Vernonville kind of real estate, private debt, angel bucket list? Or is it, okay, if it's a venture thing, does it fit in our urban capital network, which is another company that I've founded with, with, with three other people, does it fit into that bucket, right? And it fits into those buckets from the standpoint of, okay, if we're building this, like I'm building that company now, so it's going to take more of my time, but will it get to the point where it gets to, to quote unquote autopilot, where I'm not in the minutiae every day, we can hire people to do certain things, we just set the overall vision, right? And so for me, it's how do I get in, help other people to set an overall vision and then make sure it works and fits for my investors and for myself. And so as long as I don't have to be the day-to-day operative person and I can sit kind of as an advisory role, I'll look at it from that standpoint. And that's kind of the lens through which I look at a lot of these, these opportunities. Yeah, that's tremendous. And so kind of one point you've made before, I've, I've heard you say in other interviews and, and kind of you talked about before with the mentors, but one challenge people run into sometimes is, is spending the money, right? You know, it's like, Hey, I'm motivated. I mean, obviously you're a yeah. smart, like, I mean, you, you came out of school, MD, MBA. I mean, you know, probably thought, you know, Hey, I'm pretty clever guy. You know, I can figure this out. Um, you know, yep. and, but you still took it on to pay, you know, folks that had had those, those leaps and bounds ahead of you. And then even right there, when you talked about 
getting it to autopilot and then paying somebody to be in the business, right? So it's it's the mentor mentorship payment, but then also being willing to take less of a profit on the back end because you're, you know, again, but, delineating the the labor from your from your income. So how did you explain, get your mind wrapped around that? Well, let me explain to you how that happened, right? So when we were when 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 we were having success kind of early on in real estate investing, we had some physician friends and colleagues who wanted to invest with us. And at the time, you know, banks, this was 08, 09, 10, or fairly early. At the time, banks were seizing up. They didn't want to lend. So I was like, okay, well, let me see if I can put together a, a debt syndication. Not, I wasn't even thinking about what the investor wanted. I was just thinking about what I wanted, right? And essentially, it, I fell flat on my face because I centered what I needed in the business as opposed to what the people needed. And so it was failing at that and realizing, oh, crap, I'm not clever. I don't know how to do this, right? I know how to run real estate. I don't know how to present an opportunity to people that coincides with what they want in their life, right? Like I knew what I wanted in my life, but I didn't know what they want. So I had to go and learn sales, right? And so what I was always willing to do was willing to understand that if I didn't know how to do something, but someone else did, that there's no reason that I can't do it. I just need to figure out how they were able to do it. And because I've pay- I paid for medical school, I paid for business school, why wouldn't I pay for learning these other things? It's tax deductible, right? I'm going to get it back. It's not, not going to really cost me anything. And so I just tell people it's tuition. And you're going to pay tuition one of two ways, right? You're going to pay tuition by failing yourself, or you're going to pay tuition to somebody who's going to teach you how to do it so you don't fail. So either way, you're going to pay tuition one way or the other. Just figure out which way you want to ultimately do it. And so I tell people, bias towards action and pay for the things that you don't know if you really are wanting to do them from an from a operation standpoint, right? You pay for operations. If you're not trying to be operations, if you're trying to be passive, you don't have to pay. You just have to just see a lot of deals, see a lot of deals, see how people put them together, see how they think through the deals. And then in doing that, you're going to learn. And there's enough free education out there that you can learn about the particular asset class that you're going to invest in. And then you just find the people that, that resonate with you and just follow them, right? Will all their deals be great? No, things are going to mess up. Things always mess up. But chances are they're going to have more hits than strikings. And so you just have to, it's, it's a different learning process depending on how you want to operate. And that's why I say to people, the, the most important thing you can do is figure out what you yourself want to do. Cause it's not about the deal. It's not about, it's about what you're trying to ultimately accomplish. And then you're just trying to surround yourself with people who can help you accomplish your goal, not their goal for your money. And that's a big deal. Oh man, no, I, I love that. And I think, again, that, I think that's what a lot of people get caught up in, especially in the real estate realm right now. They all want to be, you know, this big bad syndicator and, you know, the next Joe Fairless or, you know, whoever whoever you want to say, right, that's out there, you know, running tons of apartment deals or industrial deals or whatever the case is. And I think, you know, that's the biggest point that I want to get across is that make sure people are looking inside and understanding, you know, what are they doing this for? You know, are they doing this for the investors? Are they doing this for the betterment of others? Or are they doing it because selfishly, hey, you know, I want to be able to brag to my friends that I can do this, or I want to, you know, be able to do this or that, or, you know, I want to make, you know, a better income, not from my job, you know, so that I want to take on this capital for that particular reason. Oh, and be clear. There's nothing more stressful than having other people's money. Promise you that. I promise you that. And if if you don't feel that way, you should not have other people's money. So yeah, it looks all glitz and glam. You put the deals together, but in the end, you have other people's money. You have a piece of everybody else's soul because they worked for that, right? That's a piece of people's lives that you now have and are a steward of and putting into something else. 
right? They are entrusting you with literally a piece of their livelihood, a piece of their soul that they worked for. That is, that is literally an amount of time on this earth that they will never get back that they have given you. That's a powerful way to look at it. And I couldn't agree more. And I think, unfortunately, in the space right now, a lot of people are undermining that reality. Right. You know, ah, you know, it's, it's money, you know, whatever, you know, this operator, you know, they seem all good. So that's the one thing I respect about you so much is that you took the path. You didn't just jump from, you know, well-to-do physician to syndicator, right? You did the operation path. And I think that's what the tremendous part is. Like you talked about, you know, and I'm sure the folks in, you talked about the vineyard or the coffee plantation or whatever the case is, obviously, you know, you can't be an expert on everything, right? Those are very diverse as far as investments, but as far as, you know, the industrial deals, uh, I know the shopping center deals. I know you've talked about multifamily deals, but you could step in and at least, you know, get the reins and, and hold, you know, rein things in. So it wasn't just a hell in a handbasket. So I, I think that's so tremendous that you've actually done the operations, understand the intricacies of the business, understand the, the pain points and could jump in and do that versus like, Hey, this person says they're an expert. Well, here, let me park, you know, a million dollars of investor capital over here. And then all of a sudden, you know, for it goes bunk and they're like, you know, what do you want me to do? They're supposed to be the expert. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, you don't know where the bodies are buried unless you've done operations, right? And, you know, the the ability to look at a deal and understand if if you've never had to fight with a contractor about something, (laughs) because there's nothing in real estate that you're not going to deal with a contractor, right? So if you don't understand kind of the tricks of the trade of kind of how they do things and the bid process and that whole thing, you know, you're going to get taken for, like I said, you're going to pay tuition, right? It's just, where are you going to pay it ultimately, right? And so, yeah, it's, 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 it's a big deal. Um, having, a, having someone who understands operations, who, who's owned their own stuff themselves successfully is a big deal. And you're right. There are a lot of people coming into the space these days who have a good Rolodex, so they're able to raise capital. But if you ask them, hey, go out there and do a deal yourself. Right, you need to be the one who's operating it. You go, you go ahead and find it, negotiate it, get to get with the bank, put the codicils and the covenants in place. You know, write up the management contract. Like they're not going to be able to do all that, right? And so, you know, I, I, I just, I just warn people to 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 understand the operational capacities and competency of the people that they're working with. Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, kind of back to the t- the freedom as well. I think it is protecting you as well, you know, say, you know, all these relationships dried up or they didn't have deals that you could funnel capital, you know, that you could kind of leverage capital into, well, then you could go out and do your own deals, right? But if you're strictly reliant upon other people to be able to facilitate deals, there's a lot of risk there, right? Back to the control of your life and everything. If you don't have someone bringing you deals, you know, you've got the capital sitting there idly, you know, it's going to go find another place to flow, right? Yeah. yeah. No, and, 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 and actually we're okay with that, right? Because we did not do one real estate project in all of 2020, right? COVID just hit, you know, we, 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 were, we were hunkered down. The good thing is we were still able to get distributions out on the products that we're doing distributions on. But we don't, you know, I don't have to do deals, right? We do products when there's a, when there's a real reason as to why we want to do them, right? I, I make enough money from the products we have and medicine and other things that I don't have to do. Like we didn't do a real estate deal all year, right? I'm okay, we'll be fine, right? And so that's the other thing you want to understand when you're dealing with folks is it's like builders, right? Or developers. Developers make money developing. So every everything looks good. If there's not another source of income for people and their money is primarily made on doing deals, you have to understand that be mindful that that's how they make their living 100% of the time, right? 
And so, you know, the, the adage is, you know, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And you've got to make sure that people's people are aligned with your plan as well. Right. And so make sure that people that that they're not just doing deals because they need to do deals and put money on the table, that this is the, that this that this deal makes sense on the numbers by itself. And then they're not re- st- stretching and reaching to make it make sense in the current marketplace. Right. Because things are just overpriced in many marketplaces right now. So make sure that you have a clear understanding in your own brain as to what you want your money to make and how that money is going to ultimately be made. Is it going to be made by them taking the asset to current market? Or is it going to be made because they have to overperform the market, right? And I'm talking just a traditional kind of real estate deal, right? Not not one that has operational components where you can actually tweak operations and make it better. But if you're talking about a regular rent, you only have so much space and you only have so much rental room in the marketplace, right? And if they're asking you to perform in the 90th percentile just to make your money, as opposed to, hey, we just need to take it to what the market is, meaning you just have to be average and you'll be and you'll make money. Those are two very different types of projects. That's that's nuanced. It takes a little experience to understand that. Um, but that's a big deal with the understanding of how is your money being made. I tell people all the time, I can make an IRR look like anything, right? I know the inputs, I can make an assumption, make anything. What you want to know is the story behind the IRR. You want to know the story behind the numbers. If the market is 90% occupied and you're buying the property at 90% and you need to take it to 94% to to hit your numbers, are you that special? Or are you buying the property and it's 80% occupied, the rest of the market is 90% and that delta between 80 and 90 is where your money is going to be made, right? You don't have to be special then. You just have to be competent, right? And that's how you begin to, and and that is for any piece of real estate, right? Because it's all just rent, you're just renting time, right? And so the question you have to ask yourself around these things is, is what's the story behind the numbers that gets me my return? Is it an overperforming story? Is it a market performing story? Or is it, hey, we can still underperform and make money. If you can underperform and make money, those are the deals you want to do all day long because you can always fix management. You can't fix a market. You can't make the market give you more rent. You can't make the market necessarily give you more occupancy, right? So control the things you can control on the front end going into a deal. So- Man, this is a masterclass. I don't know. Yeah, this is this is free tuition right here. Anybody listening, man, you're you're dropping bombs. This is outstanding. So well, this is what we do in our investor presentations, right? Our job is to educate an investor so whether or not they invest with us or someone else, they don't get burned, right? Because if they get burned somewhere else, they're not going to keep investing in these assets. They're going to think the whole thing sucks. So our job is to make as educated investors as possible. So I tell people Watch our presentation. Even you're not going to invest with me. Watch our presentations. I promise you, I'm going to. You will learn something on everything because we're going to walk you through at least a way you can look at every kind of asset, whether it be stocks, bonds, mutual funds. A way that you can look at all investments so that it makes sense for you from a story standpoint, and then you can make a decision one way or the other um, with you. But I would argue anybody you're going to put money with, they need to be walking you through an easy story for understanding their particular the particular market for that asset. Using third-party data, not just their their opinion. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, I, I love the the fact you're talking about you know understand the story and and how the operator is making money, right? Is it strictly is their income strictly coming in from doing deals and actually running them on a you know day in and day out basis? And the acquisition fee, disposition fees, the asset management fees. You know how are they actually? making income and are they solely reliant upon that? Because, you know, again, that could lead to more aggressive decisions or, you know, uh, changes in the business plan that might not be the be- in the best interest of the, of the investors and the LPs. Um, so no, that, that is outstanding. So, well, the last thing I wanted to touch upon was, 
you're a physician, right? I mean, so you're working in the business all the time, but you purposefully started off only working four days a week. So you had that additional day. I know a lot of people struggle with, you know, when you, you, you have those golden handcuffs, you start making, you know, 150, 200 grand, 250 grand, whatever, whatever you're making, you're making good money, right? You're living comfortably and you're very proud of that, right? I mean, you've worked hard and you've put that in. So how did you find a way mentally to kind of start in, and also, you know, in regards to your schedule, decoupling the days that you work to now to the point that, you know, you're working, I think only one day a week now. So I guess, can you walk us through that life cycle so that folks can try to understand how they may be able to implement similar strategies into their current employment situation as well? Yeah. So it gets back to the, uh, to the, to the, to the, I'm not money motivated, right? So I was willing to take less money as a physician to work less days, but I also, it wasn't just because I was going to, you know, golf on that day necessarily, right? It was because I was purposely looking to build an income stream that was independent of my labor. And so I understood that that day that I was not going to be working, I could build an income stream that would replace that day as if I were working, right? Just it's the concept of chunking, chunking time, right? So it wasn't, from a psychological standpoint, it was a, I looked at it as a de- deferment, not a, not, not a, not like I was missing anything specifically, right? And so for me, it just, you know, if you're will, I tell people all the time, if you're willing to take less money, you don't have to work as hard. It's just, a, that's just, it's a simple decision, right? And so, but that always starts, stuck, that always comes back to making sure that you don't create an expensive lifestyle on the front end. And that's hard for physicians and people who have done deferred gratification for many years. Um, and so I understand, I get that, right? That's not an easy decision point to make, but it was one for me that was important that saying, you know what? They control the the paycheck someone else is paying me. I don't have to, you know, slavishly just be there all the time. Like I need that paycheck. I need that paycheck. Creating that discipline to say, you know what? I'll take less because I have enough confidence in myself that I will make more down the road was all, all I ultimately needed from that standpoint. And so that was a purposeful thing to build something of equity that I owned because initially I didn't own my own practice. I was working for somebody else because it didn't make sense from a, from a hour dollar per hour work for me to own a practice. So I said, okay, you know what? Just pay me. I can leave at five o'clock and I can do my own thing kind of after hours from that standpoint. So, you know, not being money motivated and keeping my expenses relatively low early on, and then only increasing the expenses as the income increased from non-labor sources. That was the formula that ended up working um, for me. And so, and so today, how many are you still work? You're still practicing, correct? So, how many how many yeah. hours are you putting in a week? In so, pre-COVID, I would I would see patients kind of on Wednesdays, and I'm actually as soon as we finish this, I'm actually there's a patient that needs to see me. So I'm gonna go and see this one patient um, as soon as we finish. Um, but right now during COVID, maybe one or two a week, if that much, depending on what it's just because I want everybody to get their vaccines. Most of my patients are over 65. I don't want to bring them out as much as possible. So we're doing everything remotely for the most part. I have a very good assistant. And so she texts me during the day as we, as, as things are needed. And that's during the week as well, right? Just because I don't go into the office I'm an internist, right? 99% of what I do is brain, right? So I just need to think about things and I can do a lot of stuff without having to physically be there seeing patients. And so while I may only go in one day a week, you know, I'll get texts throughout the week just about patients who need X, Y, or Z from that particular standpoint, but I can do it again, kind of on my own time from that standpoint. So once all my patients get their vaccine, I'll, I'll go back to going in very likely one day a week. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's not that bad. <laughs> One day a week is a, a little bit easier to stomach, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's okay. I have, I have no problem. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so the thing that you made, the point you made that to me stands out so much is the, the deferment of gratification, right? I mean, so you intentionally took less money knowing that in the back end, now you'd be living the lifestyle that you have now. Right. And I think that's tough in society in general, but obviously, you know, in the younger generations, you know, instant gratification is just so important, right? Hey, I want to be a syndicator and I want to have 10 deals and I want to, you know, have acquisition fees of hundred thousand, 200,000 and whatever the case is. Right. But the fact that you really took the time and invested in yourself to gain that time on the back end, right. Because, you know, I, I'm assuming a lot of these folks are going to try to take these leaps and bounds and then stumble, you know, and ultimately, and then now all of a sudden they're stuck back in the same situation. Whereas if they just took a little bit more consistent, contrite path, they could have gotten there, you know, in maybe three or four years longer, but then they could be living the lifestyle similar to yourself where maybe you're only working, going in one day a week or a few hours a week or whatever the case is. Yeah. I mean, the key is to enjoy it as you go along, right? Because the beauty of four days a week is not that that fifth day wasn't all on building, right? I had, I had time to myself. And so the key is to none of us are promised tomorrow. So how do you build a life that you are enjoy as you go through the process? Right. So, you know, again, because I'm not money motivated, I'm not materially motivated. It wasn't, I personally didn't need a lot of toys or all those other kinds of stuff. Right. Because it just, it just didn't matter to me in, in that kind of way um, from, from that standpoint. And I'm not telling other people that it's not important for them. The question is, what is more important? Right. Because the other issue is, yeah, you can take those, those, those acquisition fees and all that kind of stuff, but are you putting it back into the business? Are you putting it back into the business such that the business automates itself? Right. You talked about a funnel earlier, right? People get on my list every day when I'm asleep because we've built funnel mechanisms and we pay people to run funnel mechanisms for us to make those kinds of things happen, right? So it's not just about making the money, but it's then also allocating the money back so that it supports your life, not just to be spent, spend it so that it supports the business so the business supports your life. The key, the key is always how do you have assets and businesses supporting your life? As opposed to, again, your labor supporting your life. So you take the acquisition fee and then and you spend it all, right? As opposed to saying, hey, I'm going to take 30 grand of it. I'm going to pay a marketer to help with this or to write my copy or do X amount of other things that will then build this thing even bigger from that standpoint, but built bigger without me having to be in it in the same way, right? Because bigger isn't better. Better is better, as Del Wamsey likes to say. Right? Yeah, I mean, and back to your point just previously around, you know, where's that money going, right? You know, is that strictly, you know, what they're using to pay their bills, to, to, you know, to have food on their table? And if it is, then they can't go and turn and invest back in the business and things of that sort. So, well, man, this has been an outstanding conversation. I've really appreciated it. We'll wrap up here with the contrarian three pack. So, uh, you talked about vineyards, coffee. I know you've done industrial strip centers. So, what would you say is the most contrarian investment that you've made? before? Ooh, it was probably more timing than anything. And it still hasn't come to complete fruition, but it will, when you look at the time frame that we had planned it on, there's some things around it that I, we won't get into on air, but really it was probably being part of the team that built the, the Hilton in Belize, right? Uh, because when we did it, you know, we were starting around 2012, 2013. Um, and, you know, it wasn't on anybody's radar screen, right? And now Belize is on everybody's radar screen, right? Um, the same thing with the coffee plantations, right? Same thing. Panama, people are like, oh, what, what? And then the Panama Papers came out and like, oh, this is a place where people actually like. So some of it is just understanding what I call frontier investing. <laughs> and that's just meaning investing in places that are growing faster than your home country. There are going to be some bumps and bruises. There are going to be some, but if you're, but if you're on a long-term capital building pathway, you're not worried about the vicissitudes of day-to-day, even year-to-year. What you're looking for is a long-term process, right? And thinking about what 
could potentially be iconic 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And what I mean by that is I'm somebody who spends a lot of time in the Caribbean. So if you're talking about Doctor's Cave and, and the hip strip in Jamaica, 50 years ago, people were developing that, right? But today you go there, you're going to stay there. You're going to do X, Y, and Z. And the people who own that have done very well. Did they do well in the first 10 years? No, they didn't. Did they do well 20 years later? Absolutely, they did, right? And so having a, a, a time horizon investing mindset that isn't worried about the day-to-day fluctuations, but says, like Warren Buffett says, you have 20 moves. Let's say you have 20 moves to make in your life. That's it. Choose wisely. Like he's not a trader. He doesn't get in and out of stuff. People are so enamored of getting in and out of things, but wealth is never made really on trading. It's really on letting businesses and equity grow over time and compound, right? And so people think about a compounding interest. They don't think about the internal compounding of, if we're talking about real estate, of real estate, the cash flow, the tax benefits, the the increase in price, right? The demand drivers, right? There's a, there's a compounding that happens over time as well. If you think about kind of what your grandparents paid for their home and what you paid for almost that same exact home, right? There's a compound, the imputed compounding that happens in, in the same kind of way. And the only way you get that is if you stay in, right? Now, not all deals are made to stay in, but we look at the world and if we have to stay through two bad cycles, anything we buy, we should be able to be able to hold for 10 to 20 years and it do exactly what we expected it to do. We may not get the sales price, but if there's an internal cash flows and internal, right, we expect that to happen. And that's kind of how we look at most of our projects, that 20 years from now, whatever we owned is probably going to be that same thing, unless it's been raised and then a higher and better use with more value is going to be created. And I think people should think about their portfolios in that regard, more so than kind of the daily price fluctuations. Well, and, and to your point, de-risks the investment to an extent too, right? You're not just getting in and saying, oh, we've got to flip it, you know, based on these market conditions. And when you're talking about 20 years, we're going to see a lot of crazy stuff. I mean, you know, hopefully we don't see anything as crazy as, as COVID again. You know, hopefully that'll be the last pandemic we see for hundreds of years. But just in general, you know, the, the, the fact that you can take those punches and roll with it and come out on the other side, you know, no worse for the wear and, you know, m- more than likely, you know, much better off for it, I think is the important part with kind of the iterative distributions and cash flow and tax benefits throughout. So, so obviously, you know, just like me, you're a junkie, right? You could talk this stuff till you're blue in the face all day long. What's Mm -hmm. your favorite thing to do with family and friends outside of the business and the investing? Uh, travel, just travel, um, and just travel and be with each other. So I travel a lot with my family. I travel a lot with friends. We, you know, we usually take one, you know, big trip a year somewhere as a, as a group, um, and just kind of being with each other. Um, I don't need a lot of excitement, you know, you know, good conversation, some couple cigars, some, some, some good alcohol, and I'm and I'm and a good scenery. I'm pretty well happy. I'm 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 relatively low maintenance that way, uh, from that standpoint. So that's really where I like to spend my time is good scenery with family and friends in conversation. You mentioned the Caribbean. Do you have a favorite destination or kind of a place that that you're dying to get to once all this kind of lets up? Uh, wife is ready to get back to Jamaica. Uh, so trying to get back there. Um, and I, you know, I just like the Caribbean in general, right? I mean, clear, clearly I do because we, we own stuff there, right? So I tell people all the time, investing doesn't have to, investing can support your lifestyle as well, right? It doesn't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, so, you know, Jamaica, Belize, Panama, those are all places that I like, I like to be, uh, consistently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what, what does offer you the most fulfillment in life? Interestingly enough, it is helping people see the world different, right? And so what I tell people all the time that what I do on the investment side and what I do as a primary care physician is very, very similar, right? 
all we're trying to do is help people reach their self-actualization, whether it be on their health side or whether it be kind of mentally around finances, right? Um, is getting people to see, like you said, see the world differently than they've been taught and trained. When people get that aha moment and like, oh, oh, that to me is giving people a vision of their own future where they don't feel trapped is what moves me. Oh, that's powerful. And the fact that you can do it in, in, in multiple realms is extremely empowering and exciting. So, all right, man, well, this has been tremendous. I, I greatly appreciate the time. What's the best way for the audience to get in touch with you out there, check out Vernonville and, and see what other opportunities may be coming down the pipe? Yeah. I mean, the easiest way, you know, uh, I, I'm decent. I, I, I Google decently well, but you know, Vernonville.com, V-E-R-N-O-N-V-I-L-L-E.com. You can go on there. You can sign up for our newsletter. Then you'll get all of our missives. We send something out usually once a week. It's educational. And then if we're in the middle of a capital raise, you may get one or two emails a week just talking about presentations and, and kind of timing around those kinds of things from that standpoint. Or on uh, thephysiciansroad.com um, from that standpoint. Um, that really is for busy professionals. It, it tends to cater towards physicians a little bit, but if you look at some of the content, it's not only physician-based. Um, it, it, it can be fairly universal. We built that kind of as a, a life balance wheel for people um, in, in many regards. And that's kind of my give back to the profession in terms of how do you kind of structure yourself in such a way um, that you're not feeling burned out um, in that in that regard. And then just email eric, E-R-I-C, at vernonville.com. You can you know, give me 24 to 48 hours, depending on what's going on. But um, I answer my own emails. And and I would recommend, just like you said, I mean, the Physicians Road, obviously tremendous podcast, obviously for physicians, but I think there's a lot of application outside of that, just as far as like you talked about around the education and, you know, kind of personal development. I know that's extremely important to you. And so I think there's a lot of nuggets in there for anybody. I definitely would recommend checking that out. So, all right, man, well, uh, hopefully soon enough, things let up, you know, we got these vaccines flowing and you guys are kicking it in the Caribbean. Yep, absolutely. We're, we're waiting to get back. So um, just I want everybody out there to be safe, mask up, get your vaccine, please. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again. Until next time, live thanks. fulfilled. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.